Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor at Wired, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab, the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I'm joined this week by my co-host, Lauren Good, senior writer at Wired. Hello. Arielle Pardes is off this week. She's doing a carrot juice cleanse down in Mexico City, and we wish her the best, and she'll be back next week. She's really doing a cleanse? Yeah, all carrot juice. I'm just doubly jealous now yoga in the mornings yeah the whole thing yeah well that's very cool i hope she has a fantastic trip we do miss her um but on today's show we're going to first take you through the news per usual and then we're going to be talking about new york's new legislation around revenge porn we're going to discuss what it does for the victims uh why it took so long and why some critics say the new law is not enough and wired's emma gray ellis is going to join us to discuss she has a great story about that this week on wired.com she does uh but first let's get to the news okay mike have you ever heard uh the song the gambler you know you've got to know when to hold them and no one to fold them and no one to walk away and no one to run. The Kenny Rogers song? Yeah, that one. I had the cassette tape. Oh. Why would you ask wow, if I heard that song? Wow, the cassette tape? Yeah, I'm old. What's a cassette tape? I'm just I'm kidding. Old. I know what a cassette tape is. Okay, Samsung not running away from this foldum. Oh my goodness. But Samsung says it has <laughs> fixed the faulty Galaxy Fold. It's a phone that had something of a non-starter launch back in April, and then it was delayed. The Fold is Samsung's flexible display phone. 
you know, flexible displays are a hot topic right now in smartphone land, but so far mostly in concept and not necessarily in execution. So a little bit of backstory before we talk about what's actually new here. Samsung first launched this Galaxy Fold phone back in April. Wired had a little hands-on with it. I spent you know, some time with the phone. Everyone was very excited. This is the first one coming to market. Other companies like Huawei and Motorola and Lenovo have, which owns Motorola, have said they're putting out flexible displays soon too. But Samsung really was first to market. Then, almost immediately after reviewers got it in their hands, a bunch of reviewers, uh, people from The Verge and Bloomberg and CNBC and Marcus Brownlee, who's a very well-known YouTuber, started to experience some pretty significant issues with the phone. The displays were strobing. There was damage, you know, damage appeared on the, uh, the OLED display. Um, Marquez Brownlee actually, and he's not the only one, started to peel off what appeared to be the top layer of the display because a lot of people were mistaking it for that typical protective adhesive that comes on smartphones. Turns out that was an integral part of the display and you weren't <laughs> supposed to peel it off. But really, who was going to know that? So the the launch or the pre-launch was basically bungled mm. because the phone had issues. Samsung delayed the official release of it. Uh, they told people that they would be able to um, still pre-order it up until I think the end of May. And then at that point, if it had not actually started shipping, they were going to cancel all the pre-orders. And then we were just waiting to see what Samsung had to say about the phone. And frankly, I was wondering if the thing was even going to work. Now Samsung says it has made some reinforcements and fixes that will eventually make this phone shippable. The company says it has extended the protective layer on top, uh, that, that part that's actually part of the display. And so by extending it, it doesn't look like there's an edge that you would want to get your fingernail under and pick off of it. So it's probably going to keep people from, from peeling it. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully. But although, you know, some people, some reviewers would probably just do it for fun. Yep. Uh, the hinge area, which is a part of the phone that Samsung had been particularly proud of in our early briefing, um, is said to be strengthened. The gap between the hinge and the phone bodies has been reduced. And then most critical might be the actual reinforcements added to the display itself. Samsung says it has redesigned the phone with quote unquote additional metal layers underneath the Infinity Flex display to reinforce the protection of it. Now, Samsung says it is still in the final product testing phase of this. Just doesn't sound all that encouraging if mm -hmm. you ask me. It should be like, we've tested this thing, we've run it through the gamut, it's good to go. We are 100% confident that when you spend nearly $2,000 on this phone, it's gonna work. But no, they're hedging it a little bit. They're still in the final product testing stages and they think it will ship in September. Well, okay. First of all, $2,000? $2,000. 1980 to be exact. $1,980. That is correct. For a phone that is going to be very fragile mm -hmm. and that you will probably be able to keep alive for about a year if you use it gently. Right? Which is so interesting because that it seems like maybe that's being generous now after we've seen the problems. But when Samsung first launched this, they claimed they had put it through testing and that they thought it would fold so many times that you could it would work for like up to five years, which just sounds crazy now. It does. I mean, okay, so you're you're taking a device that typically has absolutely zero moving parts except for like the volume rocker, and you're introducing how many moving parts? Like a dozen? Um, I just, it, from a durability standpoint, it's just I can't wrap my head around it. Of course, I'm not making, you know, strict judgments about the phone. It's just it, something about it smells funny. So I'm interested to see how it plays out. The other part of it is that what is the utility of a folding phone? Now, you actually used it. So I'm curious to hear you tell us 
like, is this something that is useful at all? Is it better than a phone that does not have an inside screen that you expose by opening the device like a book? It's an excellent question. And I believe that Samsung thinks the value proposition is twofold. One is that the form factor adds some value because instead of carrying around both a smartphone and let's say a tablet or a Kindle, you have something that when you need a smartphone is, you know, fits in one hand and you can text really quickly or make a phone call as you would on a smartphone. And then when you need a larger screened experience, like if you're a commuter like I am and you want to read or you need to look at maps and you need the maps to be on a larger display or you want to watch a video, then you have that all in the same device, which is interesting too, because uh, like it brings up all sorts of questions about cannibalization of other devices, but that's not really what we're talking about <laughs> on this particular podcast. Then the other part of it is the software experience that is supposed to add value, which is uh, it's supposed to be good for multitasking. So you're able to run up to three apps at once on the same screen, provided that the apps have been updated to support that. Samsung partnered closely with Google on this so that Google apps can do this. Other apps sort of do it. I remember testing Netflix and like, it didn't really work in the same way in terms of multitasking. It wouldn't like go over to the sidebar. But yeah, the idea is that you'd have one big app center stage and then on the sidebar you could stack two apps on top of each other and then presumably you would be able to drag and drop between some of them too now in once again it's like in concept this is all really interesting in execution there's no real proven market need for this Mm -hmm. at this point in time it's something new and it's all by the way it's something new at a time when smartphones have become pretty boring and Mm -hmm. pretty repetitive and derivative in some ways so i give some samsung credit for trying something new um but i don't think that there's any real proven need for this just yet it it's you know first sort of run out of the gate it wasn't working well and it's two thousand dollars so i too am a little bit skeptical i mean i thought it was cool when i first played with it and because seeing a folding display is a woe-worthy moment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't think many people are going to buy this thing. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, thought experiment real quick. Yeah. Like, let's say you're a Samsung Galaxy S user, right? And you mm-hmm. have the latest Galaxy S. And the Fold is exactly the same price as the Galaxy S. So you go to buy your next phone and you have the choice of buying the one that you've been using or the one that has two screens, uh, a slim front screen and then a very big wide screen inside. Which one do you buy? Do you buy the one that folds or do you buy the one that you've been using for if, 10 years? If they're the same exact price? Yeah. Um, I would be willing to try the fold if it was proven not to break. <laughs> <laughs> really, though, I would. I'd be willing to try that form factor. It would be a little awkward for things like working out and running because when it's closed, it actually feels more of like a wand or, or like a TV remote than it uh. does like a phone. So you have to keep that in mind, too. But... Um, yeah, I'd be willing to experiment for a while. Okay. What about you? No. Okay. I knew that was going to be the answer. Why did I even ask? Should we talk about Facebook? Let's do. All right. Okay, real quick. On Wednesday of this week, uh, the U.S. government announced that it had settled charges that uh, Facebook had deceived millions of Americans over how it used and shared their personal information. So... The U.S. government and uh, in particular the Federal Trade Commission have been investigating Facebook for a number of months. Uh, The settlement finally came out with a 50-page complaint that outlined the case against Facebook and it also stated that there would be a $5 billion fine that Facebook will have to pay. We've known about the fine for a while, 
But the news here is what's in this 50-page complaint. Um, Wired writers Caitlin Kelly and Fred Vogelstein did a really great wrap-up of this um, of this complaint on Wednesday, so we'll definitely link to that in the show notes so you can read it. They say that the settlement requires Facebook to make substantial changes to the company's structure, alter how it picks people to sit on its board of directors, and it forces them to change the ways that it handles privacy issues internally. It also sets up an outside government-approved assessor that will make sure that Facebook complies with the order. So that's kind of interesting because it's not something that like this public, uh, the, sorry, that this government-approved assessor is going to be reporting to the public. They're just going to be studying Facebook and then reporting internally back to Facebook. So that exposes the fact that there are a few shortcomings that uh, experts and particularly people who report on Facebook a lot have uh, have pointed out about this about this settlement. One, uh, there are some restrictions in um, in the order on how Facebook collects, uses, and shares data, but most of those restrictions address Facebook's past sins. So this has to do with Cambridge Analytica. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So if Facebook is collecting like email addresses and phone numbers from its users and then sharing that with third parties, they're not allowed to do that anymore. However, it doesn't really place any restrictions on how, for example, they use your metadata in WhatsApp mm-hmm. because that's on something that they've gotten in trouble for. And does it change how they're mining all of our data to basically sell ads against it and how it's going places we don't really know or understand? So I have not read the full report. Mm-hmm. I've read analysis of the report. And from what I understand, there are some restrictions that are probably going to limit that mechanism in some way. However, that mechanism will still stand. Facebook will still be able to study your activity on its apps all over the internet through uh, tracking pixels and like buttons and things like that. And like basically anything that that was not directly something that Facebook got dinged for in the Cambridge Analytica scandal is something that you're probably not going to see them restricted from doing in the future. And what were the other shortcomings in the report? Something that a lot of people wanted to see happen was uh, finger pointing. People wanted to see executives, particularly Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, named in the report as culpable parties. The report stopped short of doing that. Nobody is named in the report. No executives. Nobody. What Does this just say, like, Facebook white man number one? <laughs> <laughs> what, what is it, you know? Um, I, that's that's the part that I'm most curious about, actually, because usually you can point to somebody in a company who is responsible for how these things operate. But I think that, you know, just the board of directors and the executive team as a whole were the people who were pointed out as the culpable parties in this. That's but, so interesting. Do you think there's something unique about Facebook's executive structure that lent itself to that? I don't. Hmm. Um, I don't. I, I think it's just basically like they're, the government is asking for a, a massive restructuring and for them to make that request sort of says that they think that everybody at the top needs more oversight and that they didn't want to point out anyone in particular. I don't really know why, but a lot of a lot of people who who were waiting for them to say Mark Zuckerberg needs to go or Mark Zuckerberg needs to make some changes or he needs to step down as CEO and then maybe he's like chief technical officer and they put in some adult supervision to use a term that is the Valley loves to use uh, whenever there's a scandal. Um, but we don't really know. Um, that always cracks me up, by the way. Yes. Like adult supervision is like. The person who doesn't work from the bean, the colorful bean bag, you know, in the corner of the massage room right. at work. But in reality, there's some very real and serious problems happening in some of these organizations that need oversight. Absolutely true. Yes. Um, the last thing that's the big shortcoming is 
kind of funny, actually. It's that the $5 billion fine is like the largest fine by a major factor that's ever been levied against a, a company in this position. And it is also kind of peanuts to Facebook. Mm-hmm. Facebook makes much more than $5 billion in some quarters. And in fact, it reported earnings this week. And after adjusting its earnings to compensate for the $5 billion fine, it still posted about $2.5 billion in earnings. So that fine is being viewed widely as a slap on the wrist. Uh, There are people who uh, work at the FTC and uh, people who uh, report on the FTC who have reported that there were several people who were involved in the investigation and in the complaint who uh, wanted to ask for more money and were not able to for various reasons. Uh, some people said that $10 billion probably would have been something that would have that would have actually been more impactful to Facebook's uh, bottom line. But the fact is they're paying the $5 billion and they are soldiering on doing all of the things that they were doing before, except for the stuff that they got in trouble with with Cambridge Analytica, plus a few other small things that is probably not going to impact their business in the future. But it does seem as though the love affair with big tech in the U.S. is definitely ending at this yes. point. Because in addition to this, there was the Senate Banking Committee hearing in which David Marcus, Facebook executive, named in this case, <laughs> uh, who's overseeing the company's cryptocurrency efforts, was grilled on the Hill to figure out what the heck Facebook is trying to do with crypto and um, basically unregulated currencies. And then... The Justice Department said it was going to open an antitrust investigation into big tech as well. Yes. And the Justice Department was involved in this investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there it's really interesting to see the government going after tech in these ways with these big agencies that have traditionally just regulated big industry and gone after, you know, very big fish. Because these are some of the biggest industries in the country and the world. And these are some of the biggest fish in the country and in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they don't. The, the government, our government, the United States government, doesn't really understand it well enough to regulate it in an effective way. And we are so far along in the way that all this stuff works. It's so the, the way that Facebook tracks you and sells you advertising, um, the way that Google tracks you and sells you advertising is so embedded in how we communicate and how we use our devices and how we use the internet that at this point what can you walk back that would not substantially change everything about how we interact with technology right you know it's so complicated so it's also great for us because it means that you know job security for journalists who cover this stuff (laughs) (laughs) that's one way of looking at it well they're also siphoning aware ad dollars so i don't know it's a double-edged sword i suppose it is should we move on to emma let's do it let's do it This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. 
The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. This week, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed into law a bill that criminalizes the publication of non-consensual pornography, known colloquially as revenge porn. This new law makes New York the 46th state to implement protections against revenge porn for its residents. While most agree that the new law is an important step for citizens' rights on the internet, many say that it's long overdue, and a few watchdogs have lobbed criticisms at some of the specific language in the bill which they feel limits its efficacy. Wired writer Emma Gray Ellis has been following the revenge porn saga for many months, and she joins us today. Welcome back to the show, Emma. Thanks so much for having me. Emma, it's great to have you here. Let's just briefly define revenge porn for listeners who may not know what the term means exactly. Absolutely. Non-consensual pornography or revenge porn is basically any time that someone takes a nude private image that the person pictured would have expected to remain private and then makes that image public. The reason that people tend to call it revenge porn and not non-consensual pornography is because that's a little bit of a wonky sort of phrase, but we tend to imagine it as mostly done by angry exes, mostly ex-boyfriends. Um, but in reality, it's often done by random people on the internet. The, the good example is, you know, celebrity leaks of nudes. Those all count as non-consensual pornography, even though there isn't a revenge element per se. So it doesn't matter if you're a public figure or this is just a private exchange. Mm -hmm. On any level, when you expect the photo to be private, it shows a nude element of your body and it gets shared that right. falls in the category. And the person had a reasonable assumption that you would have expected it to remain private. Oh, okay. So tell us about this bill that was signed into law last week. Yeah. Um, so first, and I should say that this bill is the uh, a great step forward for New York. 46, being the 46th state is a dubious honor. It's been, this bill has been, <laughs> this bill has been a long, long time coming. And, um, Assemblyman uh, Bronstein and uh, lawyer Carrie Goldberg have been working on it for over half a decade, which is so long. <laughs> uh, and um, what it does that's that's unique is that, or at least somewhat unique in the corpus of these laws, is that it provides private right of action for the victim, which means that even uh, outside of the state court system, you can privately sue the offender and you can request that the website hosting um, take those images down, which sounds basic, but isn't always guaranteed in every state. Uh, and I think that it's been rightly celebrated for those reasons. Uh, other people see limitations with the law, particularly as it defines harassment and intent to spread these images. So it seems that there were already some protections built into the laws for people who are victims of revenge porn uh, for harassment, right? They can claim that they're being harassed. So how is it, how is this law different than like the protections that were already in place to protect people against online harassment? 
So critics of the law would say that it's not different enough mm -hmm. the, and that it basically doesn't extend protections. Um, the thing that it does um, that's, that's different than the harassment law is that in New York's existing harassment laws, you had to personally target the victim. And so it, if you said, if I, if I stole someone's nudes and then sent it to their whole family and their boss, as happened in a notable case in New York in 2014, uh, that wasn't counted as harassment by the state because it didn't target the person in the images, mm. which is not at all how like the crime of non-consensual pornography works. Like, why would someone send you your own image? Um, and this does away with that, in addition to providing these extra rights for victims, um, notably the private right to action. Uh, so this sounds like something that should have been legal a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, what took so long? Uh, so the short answer is that legislators kept refusing to vote on the issue. Um, the longer answer is that it's... Um, was due to pressure from a number of outside parties. Uh, in our world, big tech is not a huge fan of these private right to action clauses, um, just because it, you know, it puts the onus on them uh, to take these things down, and it might make them liable. Even though um, lawyers argue that they're already protected against uh, against liability by Section Two Thirty, um, and then uh, very curiously to me, uh, the ACLU is also has been a vocal critic of this bill throughout its history. Really? Um, yeah, I was really surprised. Um, basically, they view it as an overstep of the First Amendment rights uh, and think it might unfairly target young people who share n racy images reflexively, which is the, which is their line. Um, which I think is strange. Yeah. Uh, and First Amendment scholars disagree uh, that it's an overreach, um, but they feel strongly that it is, and that as such it wouldn't hold up in court um, without including a clause that said that the person spreading the non-consensual pornography must have an intent to harm the victim. Oh, that's so interesting. So, so they believe that even if someone were to take these nudes and spread them to a person's friends and family, that mm -hmm. that could be a reflexive action and not a thought out one. Yeah, I think that they're probably envisioning less the people sending things to people's families mm -hmm. and more uh, the 15 year old who happens on a naked image of Jennifer Lawrence and shares it on Facebook. Oh, interesting. Um, I think that that's probably a bad thing to do, no matter what. Right. But yeah. you know, what's J Law would agree. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, very vocally, she Don't want agrees. Don't to speak on her behalf. No. But yes. Yeah. She's her positions on that is clear, um, and so uh, because of that, um, and because of all these tensions, there was an awful lot of back and forth, and um, Assemblyman Bronstein and uh, Carrie Goldberg and others worked really hard um, to hold firm on the idea that they didn't want. Um, an intent to harm clause within the law, but um, they just, they made the determination basically that it was better to have a law in the books than no law at all. With regards to private action being being taken now, I have a couple of questions about that. The first is, have victims demonstrated that they are interested in filing private suits against the perpetrators of these crimes? And the second question is, you mentioned that cloud services, um, basically the company that is, ends up hosting the photos, um, is liable in some way now. And so I wonder, as we know, because of what we cover with the virality of the internet, some, maybe your iCloud's hacked and then something ends up on Reddit and then it ends up on Facebook. Um, so at what point does that liability stop? 
So with regard to your first question, um, the lawyers that I spoke to specifically said that the victims are interested in using money gained in private suits to cover legal fees, which can be so expensive, and also um, to pay for therapy uh, mm-hmm. and other services that they need um, as a result of being the victims of this crime. Your second question is a little bit trickier because I think there is a lot of ambiguity about where that ends, um, which is one of the reasons why tech companies and the Internet Association have been so critical or at least have reservations about this law to begin with. Um, it comes down to a matter of enforcement mm-hmm. uh, and how mu- and often in these cases how much effort the victim is willing to put in chasing down each incidence of their posting, um, which generally is something that people don't want to do. Yeah, I imagine that's really, you know, traumatizing mm -hmm. and also time consuming. Hugely so. Um, Some of the uh, sort of grassroots activist groups for um, victims of non-consensual pornography, uh, like Badass is one of them. Um, A lot of their work is doing just that uh, and taking some of that burden away from the victims or at least offering them support through that process. Mm. Um, Because it's complicated and not everyone is, is particularly tech savvy and it's also, they don't make it a terribly easy process. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious how Section 230 plays into this. Um, not to get too wonky, but just to explain it quickly for people who don't know, um, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act uh, allows companies to claim um, liability protection when somebody posts something on the platform that ends up being harmful or in violation of a copyright that somebody else holds. So basically, if somebody posts a piece a piece of revenge porn to say YouTube, uh, and then it gets flagged by the community or it gets flagged by a moderator and it gets taken down, YouTube, uh, that's YouTube's responsibility. They're not, they're, they can't be held liable just because it was posted in the first place because it's like an automated crowdsource mechanism. Right. Uh, so if the platforms themselves are held liable and that extends to um, that extends to web forums that extends to Twitter to reddit to Facebook um, if they can be sued by the people uh, who are victims of revenge porn then uh, how does that square with the liability protection they already have so I think that more than able to be sued, um, it's that they can demand the takedown, Mm. the uh, and which is the I think a distinction that they're trying to make to make it a little less confusing. Okay. Um, But absolutely, like so, um, proponents of this law, uh, as it stands, are of the opinion that Section Two Thirty means that tech companies are not liable for this in in like a a lawsuit sense. and that they're interfering with this state level law is therefore unnecessary the because why do you need double protection against something that you're already protected against at a federal level um they're of the opinion that uh they just would rather not not be you know not have that called into question at all mm-hmm. the and even though uh the law and lawyers have put it to me as more as they can demand a takedown um that still sounds like dollar signs uh, yeah. to them. At least that's my that's my understanding. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can't say I'm surprised to see tech companies using Section 230 again to basically protect themselves off from what is going on on their platforms. And it really brings up a lot of fundamental questions about whether tech companies are just platforms or whether they are media companies because they're serving up so much media. And um, 
this is something we certainly see a lot, as you said, Mike, with Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and everyone else. I'm actually curious um, with regards to these revenge porn acts, is, is it happening because a person initially shares something willingly with a partner and then that's being shared against their will? Or is are accounts actually being hacked? How are people accessing this content? So 10 years ago, I would have said that it was probably mostly vengeful exes. The, and these were private images. And that still certainly happens a lot. And it tends to be the cases that get the most media attention. Um, one study that was done by the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative suggested that as much as 80% um, don't pers- of perpetrators don't actually know their victim. Um, and that they were doing it for entertainment purposes or, you know, social clout. Uh, it was a small study, so I wouldn't say that it was 100% definitive. Um, but there definitely is um, a lot more hacking and sort of just casual voyeurism going on than than actual revenge. Interesting. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. So real quickly, last question. What else is going on in the world of revenge porn? What sorts of legislation is happening next? What sorts of things should we be on the lookout for in the news cycle? The next big thing uh, that lawyers are looking at is um, Carrie Goldberg, uh, the lawyer who championed this, is is looking into holding tech companies more liable um, for the things that are hosted on their site. But the next big, big thing to look forward to is the um, the SHIELD Act, which was introduced by uh, California Representative Jackie Speer, and it would criminalize non-consensual pornography at the federal level, mm. which would be really clarifying, um, according, according to lawyers who are familiar with it, um, simply because there's a lot of disparity between state laws. Um, they were introduced at different times, you know, they're at various stages of, of doneness and some of them are being revisited. And so having a federal backstop um, will be really important at the, as these cases go forward. Okay. Are you gonna stick around for recommendations? Sure. Okay, so let's take mm-hmm. a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll do our recommendations. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. All right. Guest privileges. You go first, Emma. Tell us and all the people, what is your recommendation I highly recommend that you check out YouTube's godmother, YouTube's unproblematic godmother, (laughs) uh, uh, Jenna Marbles, who's been on the platform for at least a decade and has really in her 30s settled in to the internet that that I signed up for. Her most recent video is called Let's Paint with String. I don't know what that means, but it's going to be a really pleasant 15 minutes. <laughs> and, and sometimes that is just what you need, the, uh, especially after looking at the sort of darknesses of the internet like we have today. Mm-hmm. For those who aren't familiar with Jenna's work, how did she get her start on YouTube? What was she known for? Oh, she was known for being very angry. <laughs> the, and really? uh, yeah, the well, she was, uh, you know, it's early 2000s. And so a lot of her early videos were like, 
how to get rid of the guy bothering you with the club. And, you know, her humor was sort of just make a crazy face at him. Um, lots of rants and yelling. But now she just is a 32-year-old lady with four dogs painting with string, apparently. Wow, that's amazing. Why mm-hmm. Marbles? Uh, Why marbles, marbles is the name of her eldest dog. Oh. And Aww. it is to protect her actual surname. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That's smart. Sweet. Jenna Marbles. Jenna Marbles. Marbles. Smash that subscribe button. Smash that subscribe button. (laughs) Her pleasant doses of YouTube. Mm -hmm. Increasingly rare. Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, My recommendation is a television show that I've been enjoying. And I have brought this show up to people. And it seems to me like not a lot of people are watching it. So I want to recommend it to Amplify it because I think it is a great piece of work. It's on Showtime. And it's called City on a Hill. And it is about, uh, it's, it's a police procedural that takes place in Boston. And it is about a um, district prosecutor and an FBI agent and the Boston PD all sort of teaming up and sort of having an adversarial relationship about a specific case that's happening in, in Boston. Uh, it stars uh, Kevin Bacon who some of you may know, yeah. and a whole host of talented young actors who you may not know. Uh, it is executive produced by um, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. And I just want to say, don't skip it just for that reason, because I know we've all had maybe a little bit too much of Ben Affleck and Matt Damon over the last 10 years. However, I will say that it uh, is a very good show, uh, and I really like it. Great acting, great sort of pacing, uh, really well directed. It's gritty. The thing that I like about it in particular is that a lot of these sort of, you know, police procedural dramas, they have um, they have a lot of the sort of in the courtroom and in the cop house stuff. And then they don't have a lot of stuff outside of the house. And you sort of get the sense that the people on the show are so consumed by their job that their home lives are sort of secondary. Right. Hmm. Uh, This show is about. It's, it's about cops as much as The Sopranos was about the mob. You know, like the real story is what's going on in their homes, their lives, their families, their relationships with their kids. All that stuff is like very upfront on the show, and I really like that about it. The other thing I like about it is that it has kind of like a law and order feel, but it, there is not um, the, the, the level of sexual violence on the show is absolutely minimal. It's not the thing that they use to draw you in. What they use to draw you in is like tense bank robbery stuff, which I really like, you know, because I feel mm-hmm. like we have enough of that on those kinds of shows to begin with, with like SBU and absolutely. You know, Law and & Order mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So highly recommended City on Hill. It's on Showtime. And I just want to point out that it takes place in Boston mm-hmm. in the early 90s. I was born in Boston. My whole family's from Boston. I like shows that are from Boston. Yeah. It's one of three Showtime shows that has people from Boston in it. There's Smilf, which takes place in Boston. And then there's Ray Donovan, which takes place in Los Angeles. But all the main characters are from Boston, and they all talk like they're from Boston. <laughs> yeah, that was a terrible Boston accent. <laughs> it's but you not know bad. What I mean. You know and they're I mean? all currently running? They're all currently on Showtime? They're all currently on Showtime. Wow. So it's like one of three shows that Showtime has about wow. Boston. Anyway. Is Ben Affleck like EPing all of them? No. <laughs> thank goodness. Yes, thank goodness. Anyway, City on a Hill. City on a Showtime. Hill. Highly recommend it. We're at season one, mm-hmm. episode six right now. Episode seven comes out this weekend. So first season is wrapping up. It's a great opportunity to get caught up on it. Great. Great recommendation. Thank you. Lauren. I recently read in page six that Ben Affleck and his girlfriend split. 
Oh, really? Yeah, totally irrelevant information for this podcast. <laughs> and I really don't read page six that much anymore, but I was like, oh, interesting. You have to scan it for all the all the Keanu news, though. Well, of course, I have to keep tabs on the Keanu sans. Yes, the Keanu yes, sans. Of course. He's not in there very much, though. He's low key. <laughs> I, know, I know this personally. What is your recommendation? My recommendation is the IKEA Sonos Symphonisk bookshelf speaker. <laughs> That's a mouthful. However, uh, it's a really great little product. I just reviewed it on wire.com this week. So if you're looking for more information, go to wire.com where you can find my review as well as Emma's story. Mm. Um, so this is interesting because IKEA a few years ago partnered with Sonos. The idea being that IKEA was going to make, you know, simple minimalistic home furnishings and that they were going to embed speakers in them so that you could also have a Sonos music experience. It's basically a product that serves as, serves double duty, which I really like the idea of because obviously IKEA caters to a certain market. A lot of times it's um, younger, hip apartment dwellers, and you don't have a lot of space, right? In in if you're like just starting out and maybe live in a small home or a tiny apartment, and so I love the idea of having something that serves as a lamp or as a bookshelf, but then also plays your music for you and has Sono speakers built in. This uh, bookshelf speaker is $99, which is the least expensive Sonos that you can currently buy. It works with the Sonos app. You can play all the same music services that you would play. If you happen to have other more expensive Sonos speakers in your home, you can pair them together so you have multi-room audio. They also introduced a lamp called the IKEA Sonos Symphonisk Table Lamp. <laughs> um, <laughs> that implementation is not as appealing to me. I don't really like the aesthetic of it. It's kind of funky looking. It doesn't function super well as a lamp. It's a really sort of low wattage candelabra bulb inside and it just like doesn't really light stuff. Um, so what you're saying is you don't love lamp. <laughs> <laughs> don't love lamp. However, I'm a fan of the bookshelf speaker. If you're a Sonos novice, you have not yet been initiated. It's a really great little starter speaker, $99 plus you can put it on your bookshelf. Um, if you already have Sonos, it's a nice maybe accessory speaker to throw in the home and then you, you have multi-room audio. Um, yeah, go check it out. Go check out our review. They go on sale in early August. When I, when I saw the photo of it, uh, I immediately thought, okay, yeah, I can get one of those and put it in the dining room. Because you don't currently have a Sonos in the dining room. Right. You have another one. I, yeah, there's there's nothing in the dining room. Right. And I think it, but like just the form factor of it, it mm -hmm. fits in in a lot of places, mm -hmm. especially if you have a room with a bookshelf in it that like the other Sonos speakers don't. Yes. Yes. Like this is, this is really going to sound like a first world problem, but I have a <laughs> Play 3 at home. And it's, it's really kind of big for a bookshelf. Yeah. Um, it's on a bookshelf, but it's big. And then I also have a Sonos Beam, which is great as a TV soundbar. But soundbars, as we know, tend to be large. Um, but the nice thing, too, is that even though these IKEA Sonos speakers don't have voice control, if you have another Sonos or even something like a tiny little Echo Dot with voice control, you can pair them all and then you can still use voice control. That's wild. Yeah. Pretty great. All right. The IKEA Sonos Symphonisk review is up on wired.com correct and you can read that and emma your story about uh the new york revenge porn legislation is up on wired.com indeed everybody should read it and we'll put it in the show notes so they can find it tell everybody how they can find you on twitter you can find me on twitter at emma gray ellis gray has an e in it nice lauren how can people find you on twitter uh lauren good also with an e in it <laughs> an e at the end um i am snack fight 
S-N-A-C-K-F-I-G-H-T. No E's at all. No E's allowed <laughs> in my name. You can talk to all of us at Gadget Lab, uh, which is the Twitter feed that we use to announce all of our stories and that we monitor for feedback on the show. So please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Also, if you enjoyed the show and you have nice things to say or if you kind of enjoyed the show and you have feedback for us, please leave us a review wherever you leave a review, whether that be at Apple or Google or any other place on the internet. You can send us an email, whatever you want. We love to hear from people who listen to the show. Uh, we also want to thank uh, Peter Arcuni for uh, engineering and producing this week's episode alongside our longtime engineer, Boone Ashworth. So thank you both gentlemen, and we will be back next week. See you then. and cybercriminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and lift off. Click here every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.